Hey everyone, Simon here. You may remember me from such podcasts as this one. Uh, we at 11FS get asked an awful lot, how do you build a challenger bank? Funnily enough, uh, we've gone and written a report. Um, the report is called How to Build a Bank, and it takes you through uh, a different way of doing it, we think. Uh, a way in which you can start small, dream big. Uh, you can think about how do you go and find that product market fit? How do you find that tiny, small proposition that customers are going to absolutely love? What customer job needs to be done? What tech needs to be put underneath it? Who are the vendors and platforms that you need to support? And how do you actually scale one of these things? Uh, that's available now. Uh, at bit.ly forward slash how to build a bank. This podcast is brought to you by Stake, the digital brokerage app bringing you unrivaled access to the US market. Invest in over 3,500 US stocks and ETFs, including game-changing companies like Google, Amazon, and Tesla. Trading is instant, direct, and commission-free. And with a fully digitized sign-up, you'll be in the market in minutes. So visit hellostake.com or search for Stake Trade to seize the US market's $31 trillion worth of opportunity today. Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr. Adam Davis. How are you doing, sir? I'm very well, sorry. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. We're discussing banks' earnings today. We are. We are. It's been earnings season across January and February for 2019 results. So this is, um, yeah, very timely. And we wanted to dig into them because, you know, compare and contrast banks on different sides of the Atlantic and look at the impact that maybe challenger banks are having on the bottom lines of the big banks, if any. If any. And uh, joining discuss. us today, of course, we've got some fantastic guests. It's not just uh, you and I having a chat, thank goodness. I mean, I love you, man, but <laughs> we, we needed some people who knew what they were talking about, uh, both of whom have extensive experience to dig into these earnings um, and finding the headlines a little bit as well. So we have Sharon Kamathi, who's editor at Fintech Futures. Welcome to the show. How are you doing, Sharon? Hey, thanks for having me. No, I am thank not you too so bad. Much. You're not too bad? Yeah. You managed to find the places that were a little tricky to find. Yes. <laughs> I went around a loop, but I got there in the end. Thank you so much. We're so glad to have you. And making a welcome return, we have Liana Brindad, who's head of Yahoo Finance in the UK. Welcome back. Hello. Nice to be back again. Yeah, no, really good to have you back. <laughs> Lots to get into. Um, but I'm just going to kick us off with a quick summary of some of the big announcements in terms of what looked good and what looked bad. Um, and then we'll just try and pull it apart for some of the some of the themes here and, and really just call out what you what you think the theme is. So the good, it looks like a lot of big banks continue to make profit. Um, ROE will come back to, but profit. Um, so RBS had the highest increase in year-on-year profit of all UK banks, and based on its 2019 annual results, Barclays and RBS both increased uh, profit before tax. Um, the cost-income ratios for Barclays, Lloyds, and all uh, and RBS all decreased year-on-year, year, so they were getting uh, a sector-beating, uh, I believe, uh, 48.5% in 2019 over at Lloyds, which which is, you know, comparing to uh, Barclays, which was sort of 63% and RBS in the 65% range. These are not bad. They're sort of high percentage. And that Lloyd's um, cost income ratio is not too bad at all. So what, what do we think? Is it is it good news to be a big bank at the moment, Adam? Um, I think it's mixed. I think if you put where uh, I guess the results are now versus where they were maybe five plus years ago, uh, it, things certainly look healthier. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, so I think, I suppose, where... A lot of the um, a lot of the reports and the words that were coming out of the banks again five years ago were things like restructuring. The uh, the debit crisis in two thousand and eight was still sort of fresh on minds. There was a lot of uh, cost rationalisation, simplification, all that sort of stuff. That seems to have gone away a little bit, a little bit. It's still there, but it's not sort of um, I suppose main headline. Um, and I guess now main headline is um, is more how do we diversify. Uh, I suppose revenue streams, but whilst keeping, whilst reducing costs, and that's come across quite a lot in a lot of the annual statements that we've read. Indeed, and and it wasn't all good news. Wells Fargo posted negative growth in consumer banking operations. Citibank had a net loss of 132 million. Lloyd's Banking Group's profit before tax fell 26 percent. HSBC still made a profit, but profit was down 33 percent. So there's a real mixed bag out there. Leona, as you look at this, what is your what are your big themes and takeaways from from where the big banks are at? Do you agree with Adam, that it's it's really very different to five years ago, but not rosy. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, 
exactly that. I should go home now. You said everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Basically, um, yeah, if you compare it to five years ago, that's when a lot of the big banks started these big cost-cutting plans. Mm -hmm. And so we are seeing some of the fruition of Mm -hmm. that over the last few years. So when we look at somewhere like HSBC, they have been committing to axing Mm -hmm. thousands, like I think like another 35,000 people, and they're trying to reduce costs. Um, They're closing up branches, things like that. So we are seeing kind of incremental um, elements coming through that are allowing profits to start being buoyed up. But as you can see in terms of the differentials, in terms of how it's panning out for a number of the banks, profits, revenue, um, net income, they're also differing because people are, um, well, the banks are on different paths at the Mm -hmm. moment and it's all very, very fragile. Sharon, how do you think about those different paths that the banks are on? Could you sort of characterize some of those different paths? Like uh, there's the old universal bank model, there's other models. How do you think about it? Well, I think a lot of the times with these big banks, they are trying to sort of figure out their new way, you know, with all the digital transformation that we're seeing, um, with lots of uh, a move towards sort of AI and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so now they're thinking, as Liana said as well, it's a matter of actually putting into practice cutting those roles. Mm. So now that they have all this infrastructure in place, they're now thinking, well, actually, you know what, we can use like fewer people for some some of these roles. And we've seen a lot of the investment banks as well are being slashed. So um, quite a few of the equities desks as well are being cut. So when it comes to those job cuts, we're finally seeing, I guess, the actual action that comes from digital transformation is once you have, you know, this technology in place, it looks like maybe in some respects, mm. um, people might not be... Uh... Turns out digital transformation takes about 12 years from a financial crisis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what a 12 years. Yeah. What a 12 years. <laughs> Eventually it will get you. All 11 years dot film. Um, but then... Oh. Uh, yeah, I, oh, I, had dear. To, I had to. I had to fit that in. Adam, there's, there's, uh, how do you reflect on that digital transformation point? You know, We've seen lots of headlines about uh, branches being cut, about uh, increasing use of mobile, but we also see lots of headlines as well about um, sort of, you know, can you be a universal bank? Can you have an investment bank anymore? Um, especially as where the HSBCs and the Barclays of the world are concerned, they, they seem to be in an interesting place. Yeah, HSBCs, I think IB business, especially in the States, hasn't done so well. I think RBS has come out, or NatWest Holdings, as I should probably call it now, mm. uh, have come out and said that they're slashing jobs from NatWest Markets, which is the IB yeah. uh, uh, portion of, uh, or IB part of the group. Um, I think it's a massively competitive space and it's getting more and more regulated, uh, more and more commoditized. Uh, and, and as we've just discussed, I think in terms of, you know, analysts' numbers and, and resource numbers are being cut across the board. So um, I can understand why, you know, 2020 strategies are sort of focusing on potentially reducing exposure, especially to riskier assets, especially if you consider what potentially is coming uh, down the road, uh, a potential recession, potential, um, and then also obviously the impact on currently coronavirus and everything else means that, you know, if you're looking at impairments and bad loans on companies um, who are exposed to that sort of uh, the effects of, 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 of both of those, um, obviously, you know, it means that I suppose the risk metrics in a lot of these IPs are going to be going all over the place. Banks do well when the economy does well. Banks don't do well when the economy does badly. And are we seeing some of that here, Liana? And, and, and can you be um, an, an old-fashioned investment bank or an investment bank period in Europe anymore, given um, the post-2008 regulations on, on you know, cost of capital? So I suppose like the the position where all the banks are now in the UK and in EMEA is still very much in that transition period. So over the last couple of years, maybe even four years, what we've been seeing is that a lot of them have put kind of this buffer zone in place where they've already set aside, so it's already priced in, into the equity and into um, their balance sheet of putting money in place of any disruption coming. So that's why you would have seen over the last few quarters, constant updates on whether there's been more money added to that pool so in case there's any huge cliff edge moments they built a buffer up yeah yeah. Just, just so, so there's a rainy day pot somewhere in the sky for, that all the banks have. Exactly. And I think a lot of the time investors are looking at it at the moment that maybe they won't have to dip into it. And mm-hmm. actually, that's just an extra bit of capital on the side, right? They can go back into the business. Mm-hmm. However, um, in terms of where they are at the moment, knowing and speaking to contacts, there are still very, very fervent contingency plans um, at a number of the large investment banks that are still going on behind the scenes on worst case scenarios because we still don't know what's going to happen mm-hmm. in terms of a lot of things like trade and when it comes to like um, 
you know, on the currency side, on fixed income, or all those things that were mentioned before, um, we still don't know. So you can be an investment bank in it, but at the moment, really right now, what the banks are trying to do is to make sure they have that buffer zone, be super cautious, not do anything risky until there's actually some set rules in place. So Ray Dalio and Warren Buffett have been out of equities for at least two, three years, you know, famous investors and, uh, you know, a lot of the the banking community is now in this um, sort of phrase that gets bandied around the city and Wall Street is nothing matters. You know, we're in this strange sort of uh, world of like everybody sort of see, see, feels like we're overdue for a recession. And if the banks feel that way too, maybe they've put aside some capital just in case. But I think yeah. your point there is, but we don't know what that would mean because it could be worse than 2008. And yeah, and I think that's a really good point, um, um, like with Buffett, for example. So Warren Buffett has always famously said he will only invest in something that he can 100% understand the metrics behind it. Um, and not even just a metrics, so, you know, at least a path of where it's going. But with the banks, they've got digital disruption, they've got um, Brexit, you've got um, protectionism, you've got... Um, many geopolitical things that could really impact economies mm. that being in a bank would be seen as a super risky investment right now. It's almost a perfect storm, Sharon. I think there's um, there's a lot of things to consider if you are in a bank strategy department, it sounds like for sure. Um, wh- what do you think the, the strategies look forward like look like in a lot of those banks? I guess it's different depending on who you are. Yeah, I would say so. I would say with some of these big banks, um, what we're seeing is more conservative plays. So they're no longer sort of trying to get into to, you know, weird currencies, we're seeing a lot less sort of in the digital currency wave because mm. there was a bit of a, a wave there before everyone mm. was like pushing bit Bitcoin. Going on, maybe. Yeah, and loads of people now, you know, moving into safer havens. We've seen a push up in gold, for example. Um, sort of like commodities are doing all right. And, you know, sadly, the stable things like bonds as well are also going down. So we're in this mm. weird period where equities are also not looking safe and bonds are not looking safe. Usually, like one tips the other, but yeah. <laughs> at this point, we're in a, a weird, like, no We're in bizarro land. land. I, I think the um, the US has been quite a different story, Adam, uh, for, for quite some time. The the interest rates there have been entirely different. It's been much more profitable to to kind of be a bank. I think uh, JP Morgan especially have uh, had a had a ban a couple of years. Their um, share price, darling, they're posting a seventeen percent uh, return on tangible equity. How are they performing so different to the a the European banks and b some of the, some of their peers? I think there's a few reasons. I think that just the sheer size and scale. Um, I think they they came out and said fifty percent of Americans can count mm. or some form of banking uh, interaction with J P Morgan. It's you know an outstanding amount. Um, their balance sheet. They actually came out in their annual results and say their balance sheet is what differentiates them, and they've mm. stress test up to the nines. You just talked about some of those scenarios. They are uh, they're actually proudly coming out and saying they've stress test more than anybody mm. else. If you like, um, I think the interestingly enough, actually, their commercial revenue wasn't necessarily as impressive as maybe other elements of their revenue, um, but their dividend in term is just unbelievable. So thirteen percent they're paying back, and that's really how you can measure, I guess, profitability of or like how I guess one of these banks are perceived in the market yeah. is they're paying back so much uh, to share. They must have all of this profit if they can pay this huge uh, dividend. It's absolutely crazy. It's, it's it's just a, a massive, massive organisation, and they're using their scale to benefit them. Um, and I think if you look at the differentiation between them and then some of the UK players, especially from geographies and things like that, you get a size of just how big they are. You know, from a, I think from an income perspective, about five times the size of like an RBS. Mm-hmm. Just enormous. They're enormous, and and uh, Liana famously after the financial crisis, they buddied up with Chase, and and that always felt like will these two banks welded together, mm. kind of work together, or will it be the classic the banks don't integrate culture clash? And it, it sort of seems to have worked. So, and you contrast that yeah. with some of the other banks that buddied up. Maybe it didn't go so well for, for some others. So what's been their key to success, do you think? I think there's a few things. One of them is actually when you look at um, the consumer market in the US, it's so culturally different to that in Europe. Um, there is, I would say, a bit of an allergy in terms of like the aging consumer market towards actually fintechs and mm. digital disruption. They still, you have always these local branches with local banks in, you know, the tiniest town. They, those are still actually thriving for a lot of places. And also at the same time, they uh, people generally stick with the bank that they've always been with. And so um, with that in mind, the big banks, whether it's the Wells Fargo's, the JP Morgan's, the Cities, um, they kind of have this consumer base that they're still 
still really hanging on to, whereas like in Europe, there's a bit more of competition. Then on the other side, with um, the matching up with Chase, um, actually the focus on the credit card business and things like that is actually super helping out mm-hmm. JP Morgan. So it's actually um, pretty successful. And that's actually been a pretty good, um, I suppose, overall integration merger story because that's what's really keeping them, I suppose, at the forefront um, of the market over yeah. there. I will say that their income just from NIMS and interest margin was $57 billion. And there's been a lot of rate cuts last year by the Fed. Mm-hmm. And in 2018, there was a lot of rate hikes. So it's been sort of, in, down, interest yeah. rates have been up and down. Even with that, they had to refactor and reforecast what their earnings would be, I think two or three times last year. That only shaved a billion I mean that's I mean that's a lot yeah. of money. But when you're making <laughs> so, fifty seven billion from yeah, them, it's actually change. yeah, it's kind so, of pocket. So it much just, of the again. banking business model is predicated on scale. And actually what they did is created an awful lot of scale in their balance sheet. And it turns out balance sheet is still a great way to, to make a lot of money. It is, and speak to the startups, because they'll potentially tell you the same thing. <laughs> but but absolutely. So it what's is there a threat to JP Morgan that you can see, Sharon? Or they they, they um you know, is, is Jamie Diamond's succession plan probably their biggest threat? Or is the cult of Jamie not something you buy into? <laughs> Sadly, I, I, it's not. Uh, <laughs> the cult of Jamie, uh, I think I'll pass on that. But I, I think with um, JP Morgan, I'm not so sure that they can have like competition right now, especially when they're trying to scale mm-hmm. into other markets. We just heard like a day ago that they were actually looking to come into the UK market and mm-hmm. disrupt it there with you know a digital bank opening soon. I know that Finn, their little venture, mm-hmm. sort of slowly got <laughs> like you know shushed away to the side but they did close it so Finn by Chase did go away it wasn't Mm. one of these zombies that never got closed and actually in that there's something to be said for Big Bang tries a thing then admits and sort of comes out and closes it there's there's something to be said for that exactly if anything that's brave and it's weird because they've actually got an opportunity there to see what didn't work out Mm -hmm. and now they can put into practice what did work into this new UK venture that they're going to do so it looks like these Big institutions are just going to keep getting bigger. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got Goldman and Marcus, so, mm-hmm. you know, and who knows what's going to happen next? Is there going to be, like, a City one that's going to come out and, like, you know, a Morgan Stanley one, like, all these big uh, And I think that's an interesting question because where would they start with that? And maybe they started in the U.S. and, 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 and are looking at other markets. But, you know, is that just about another avenue for growth or are they thinking about long-term um, sort of cost-cutting? What, what do you think the driver is for doing something like a, a challenger bank in the UK? What are they aiming to learn from it? Is it just a pure market entry play or is there more to it? I think that um, what people forget is that JP Morgan actually has a huge te- um, technology centre here in the UK. I, um, is it Bournemouth or Eastbourne? It's one of yeah, them. One. The one where no old people are at. <laughs> yeah. they, I think Eastbourne? I've been to Bournemouth recently. Like, like, maybe not. Maybe <laughs> I always get confused. Sorry, Sorry people. people of Eastbourne. But yeah, no, they've got a huge technology centre here. They've actually been one of the investment US investment banks that have been ahead of the curve and their competitors in really investing in people and um, technology, whether it's from the blockchain side, whether it's crypto, whether mm. it's how they can do things better in, in internally um, to stay ahead of the curve. And they've got a big presence in the UK already. Mm-hmm. They've got like that big centre, like I was talking about, and Jamie Dimon does come over and does a lot of stuff with staff over there. So it wouldn't be like um, they would be coming over to the UK and just launching some digital challenger bank and probably, ooh, let's just test the market as a secondary market. They're already heavily invested here. So I think they it will be a lot more thought out yeah. than maybe um, general press would make it to be. Interesting that there's been some announcements around um, kind of the maybe looking at the mass affluent sector. There's been some speculation in the press, certainly, that I, that I read along those lines. Um, is, is Has Marcus by Goldman changed the game in the US and has it changed it globally? And is that now what everybody wants to do do you think I mean when it comes to their actual mobile usage they've been getting a couple of complaints there but Mm. they did get traction because Mm. of their attractive interest rate that they were offering people like 1.5 at this point is like oh Cool. I'll yeah. take anything. Yeah, that, that's more than zero. <laughs> I just got the email though that said it was reducing to on mine is reducing to one point three. But oh, but it's interesting as well though that it, there's there's this fine line between sort of um, do I have a great mobile app versus um, is the onboarding super slick and, and and actually what's that first thing that I do and what problem does it solve for the customer and I think uh, I wonder about something like uh, uh, Marcus. It, the problem it solved is. The, 
yeah, top of the league table rates, but also really interesting onboarding mm-hmm. uh, in how they did it. What problems uh, that will JP Morgan solve and others solve through market entry for their customer becomes an interesting question to, to, to start to think about strategically. Yeah, I think savings in general, and we know from customer research that we've done, uh, is still very rate driven. So, you know, m- m- Goldman's, I suppose, the motivation to do markers. Uh, I, th- I think one of the motivations anyway came around around the cheaper source of funding mm-hmm. versus wholesale funding. And, you know, you could argue whether, I mean, JP Morgan, I, I doubt they need a lot of, <laughs> their balance sheet is so big as it is. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that that's going to be their primary play. But um, I think there's there's different, uh, you know, you mentioned before about the different influences on the different banks, even in the UK banks. Um, you know, if you look at Goldman's influence for doing markets, it was around when a funding mechanism. If you look at uh, HSBC strategy for 2020, it's very much around geographies and, and where should they play and where should they concentrate mm-hmm. because some geographies are more profitable than others maybe not after the last month but okay. <laughs> certainly at the tail end of last year um, so I think uh, there's a lot of nuances in the results that we've seen mm-hmm. uh, differentiated by where banks play and also which products they have It's interesting in the US being that universal bank seems to be almost the direction of travel Marcus and Goldman are heading that way uh, even Wells Fargo that are absolutely massive have have some plays in their city who are much more consumer based but don't not do the other stuff it's massive global transaction bank um, on that side, so in the the wholesale space. Uh, And in Europe, it's quite different. And as you say, HSBC were you know making what seems like a fairly large profit but now really considering um, where where they want to be and a big chunk of their business is Hong Kong um, is is our Asian and sort of exposed banks like HSBC maybe standard chartered in it in a tough place post coronavirus and do you think that's sort of um, priced in and, and how's that going to affect their strategies I don't know if we're post-coronavirus yet. Yeah, I think we're, we're in the yeah. midst of it. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let, let's give it a couple of months and then we'll see yeah. where we're at. Uh, yeah, given coronavirus. Yeah, g- given coronavirus. I, yeah, I mean, I said before, I think if you look at um, bad loans, impairments, if you look at um, what what the potential, I suppose, uh, implications of coronavirus are, mixed in with the fact that even before this disease, there was talks of a recession and inverted yield curves and all sorts of stuff going around. If you put, you know, it would be interesting to understand if interesting but pr- pretty scary to understand if coronavirus actually will act as an accelerator to that you know p- potential recession that everyone's been talking about uh, and if it is the exposure for HSBC to uh, just to companies generally in Asia will obviously make a massive impact indeed I'm sure it will and and I guess uh, looking sort of broader across the US there's also that question about um, the very big banks but the the mid-tier banks the the smaller banks it's a very different banking market um, do we think that the this trend Leonor, of, of the bigger banks getting bigger looks like it's gonna keep on running through the next five ten years is there anything that could derail that so it really it really depends on like a few things actually because I mean in if the likes of JP Morgan keep going the way that they're going. It's going to make it exceptionally harder because the thing is, you just think of ge- geography-wise when it comes to the US, right, and the amount of towns and cities, that local bank is still very, very important. That local, you know, mutual savings place that you'll have on that high street or a road that they'll just have like four shops, they'll always be that local bank. Mm-hmm. So that won't really go away. I think it was, um, I think I was just double checking it, but um, during Davos, um, yeah, it was uh, Michael Corbett, who's the CEO of Citigroup. He actually um, was doing a talk that was really interesting about how people sometimes criticise the likes of City going, why aren't they getting rid of, you know, branches? Why aren't they, um, mm-hmm. you know, like shutting us down, make it more digital? Because that's the way the world's going. And he actually did an analogy about his family talking about, like, when he looked around the family table, that's the reason why you couldn't go at breakneck speed for, like, digital and disrupt in the same way because you've got the older people who want to go into a, uh, a a branch. You've got the kids who are like, no, I want it as easy as possible. I want to go on an app. And then you've got some people in the middle where it's just like, oh, I, uh, uh, actually, I'm on the high street. I might as well pop in. Or, oh, oh I yeah. also want to check my stuff. So it's trying to get that balance of not alienating, actually, when you think about the volume yeah. of, like, boomers and older people who still need that element. And that's still millions or billions of people. You've got existing customers. And, yeah. and the older those customers get, the more vulnerable they yeah. are potentially. Well, JPM have committed to building branches this year in the States. So the net branch number is going to go up, which is quite interesting. Um, so that kind of, again, flies in the face of, you know, a lot of, I suppose, conventional wisdom that branch numbers is going the other way. Um, they claim it's because of SME customers, mainly more than anything else, because it helps out small businesses. Coming back to the UK, 
Lloyd CEO took a pay cut. Uh, and the bonus pool for staff was actually shrunk for the first time in four years with payouts down 33% as a result of their shrinking profits. Um, and yet at the same time, their CEO is now the second highest paid bank boss behind uh, Barclays' chief executive. Um, how do you think this sort of plays out in results season? Do, does this matter, Sharon, do you think, to uh, the the kind of the share price as much as it matters to maybe the headlines? Yes, yeah. Yes, to both, especially with the Barclays case, yeah. um, because once it was revealed that um, Just Daily got this massive like pay packet, like nonetheless, even though you know most people are thinking, well, he should probably have taken a bit more of a cut, yeah. <laughs> really, um, especially since the investigation with his ties with a certain Jeffrey Epstein. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that made share prices tumble a little bit mm-hmm. um, because it was like, well, you guys, fair enough, you've you've done okay, but, you know, quite a few of these big bosses, because he wasn't the only one who was taking a cut um, during the announcement of all their results, um, but it seemed like the investigation not only took a hit for their share price, but it was also massive headlines, because the takeaway from just, like, if you search it on any of, of you know, all of these news agencies, including ourselves, the big takeaway there was the fact that he's getting investigated because mm. of his ties with a certain person. <laughs> so that's interesting that reputational risk is price is, is in the share price mm. um, and that uh, in a world of uh, ESG and sustainable finance and impact investing um, you know with BlackRock maybe uh, some some argue it was more PR but some you know not supporting boards that that um, you know, were, were backing climate change there's a there's a real push here where the share price could move based on news and ethics in a completely different way how, how Leona, do you agree with that or is that sort of um, highfalutin um, sort of idealism? I don't think share prices necessarily move in the sense of just ethics or Mm -hmm. reputation. Obviously, that plays a part of it. But a cynic would say that the reason why if share price move, if, for example, if a very successful CEO was under investigation was more about, oh, he's going to leave and he's been very successful and that may cause Mm -hmm. a change in structure and things like that because don't forget... Uncertainty. Exactly. And Staley obviously um, has had a managed... uh, fight off um, you know getting the investment bank broken up Um, he turned it quite around since uh, Mm. Anthony Jenkins was there and things like that so one would say that it might not necessarily be like oh you know but although that's part of it right that if any executive is being investigated for any reason and it has to be declared at that level Mm. that is a reputational thing but I would say if someone's just a cold-blooded investor which Mm. most people are like and they're just looking at share price be like oh are we at risk here that someone who's turned around a bank mm-hmm. um, could leave tomorrow? And, and, what and that's that what's going to move them needle day by day. But is there a longer term piece around the the retail sort of the people that hold ten to fifty to a hundred shares in their their sort of um, stocks and shares ISA or their their pension fund? Is, it, would that make a difference? I don't know. But uh, yeah, interesting interesting questions. I think on Lloyd's just to. I mean, PPI, this is a topic that's been around again for the last 100 years. It won't um, die. It will never die. <laughs> it will not but, die. <laughs> but Lloyd's exposure to PPI is incredible. So out of the 50 billion that banks have been fined so far because of the PPI scandal, Lloyd's have been exposed to 22 billion of that. Mm. That's like almost half. Mm. They have to pay off about 2.5 billion this year, which is why their profits have fallen. I, unbelievable sums. Mm-hmm. Um I've I've never worked at Lloyd's, so I can't comment in terms of culture and everything else, but that that is an outstanding amount of money. It it is unbelievable how this PPI thing just keeps on running. It's the I'm still getting text messages. Yep. I've been getting them for four years. I think I'm like literally <laughs> the only person in the UK that hasn't claimed for PPI. No, I'm like, going to be with you. Oh, 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 <laughs> I'm wondering whether I should. It's just us. Yeah. So, <laughs> so annoyingly, so for the for the unfamiliar listener, I'm sure you are familiar, but um, p- payment protection insurance was something that was sold with a financial product and it was a sort of an auto opt-in. So the idea that uh, you were insured against if you couldn't pay for the debt product you bought. I've bought a loan, but I might not be able to make payment this month, so my payment is protected. But the reality was most people 
people that were sold that probably didn't need it. It was just a sort of a hidden fee. And then many of the people that were were sold it um, didn't know that they uh, even had the thing in the first place. So there was a, a question about was it missold, um, hence misselling PPI. Um, and I was I don't know about you, Liana, but I was one of those people who whenever I go through an online form, I'm looking for the thing I'm automatically opted into. And yep. I'm like, no, mm. I will not take your secret hidden fee. And I'm <laughs> yeah. like, damn it. No, I don't want your newsletter. No, yeah. <laughs> everything. It's like, nope, nope, nope. Uh, click here to unsubscribe. Unsubscribe. <laughs> yeah. Unless, yeah, but if of you course, wait three years, you can uh, claim back for it. <laughs> there <Exactly>. you go. <laughs> All right, changing gears slightly then, um, let's look at some of the challenger banks because um, yeah, there's some real questions about the uh, the Monzas, Starlings, N26s, Chimes, all making a loss despite huge capital injections and, and valuations. Is, are we in a fintech bubble or are these things on a path to profitability or is the, the jury out? Where do, you, where do you stand on this stuff, Sharon? Well, I think the jury's still out because some of these fintechs are still relatively young and mm-hmm. if you look at the grand scheme of things, there's still a lot of time mm-hmm. in order for them to sort of like start making profit you know it's not just about the valuations that get that they get they keep getting higher and higher and you get another unicorn here and there but I think the proof will be in the pudding in a couple of years time and we'll probably start seeing it I mean Anne Bowden a couple of weeks ago said that she's hoping that um, she'll start making profit in about two three years mm-hmm. and I guess we'll start making a judgment call on some of these fintechs within that time but for now I'll say it's a, a bit too soon to start like challenging them on on whether or not they can make Is profit. there an orthodox Ileana that banks should make profit almost from day one it, there's, I think it breaks the brain of some people that, like, it's a bank, but it doesn't make profit, but that's what they're supposed to do. Yeah, I mean, like, this is the biggest thing when it comes to, like, any kind of disruption, whether it's fintechs, whether it's sharing economy, mm-hmm. all these things, is that we've never had an exact comparison before in history. Mm-hmm. So there is this old, you know, old age thinking of that. When you go into business by the end of the year, you should make money. Otherwise, you should just give up. And so it's really it's really trying to change the mindset of not just the consumer, but also some, um, you know, some investors out there. And actually, some of the um, most, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, companies that have taken a very long time to um, online or let's say the Teslas or the Alibabas or mm. maybe they're huge now, actually took them years upon years and huge amount of investment and still are to make a profit. It's the same with fintechs. We keep saying that they're trying to do a long-term play. And then after like two years, everyone's like, yeah, but where's the money? Yeah, but it's like long-term does not mean two years or <laughs> even five years. Yeah. It could be eight, it could be 10. That, that's interesting. So venture and private equity are sort of different worlds. And I wonder how much people look at fintechs and challenger banks like their private equity. It's like, if I stick 100 million at them, when, when do I get my payback? It's in 18 months, is it in two years? And it's like, very different thing. Yeah, and it's like you, um, some of these, so we mentioned like Monzo and Starling. Um, we got N26, we got a few of them. The thing is, it's like they are on, again, just like a lot with the other banks, just in the fintech world, they're on different paths. We got Monzo that are doing some, you know, really inventive things and try to make this a one-stop app for everything, whether it's your bank account, whether it's looking at housing stuff. I think that was like mm-hmm. announced today or yesterday. Um, you've got the things about like coupons for like energy companies. It's like they're trying to do all this stuff. And I think um, I think CEO did say like last year that they could do less, they can go slower and actually not do as an inventive stuff. But that means that all their plans to kind of be that kind of one-stop shop for everything yeah. won't be realized. It's kind of mission-driven and it's longer term than people think. So people exactly. are looking at the deposits amounts and the profits. That's interesting. Yeah, but it's all, I mean, if you look at the Monzos and the Starlings, N26s, et cetera, you look at them as probably tech companies. I mean, they are banks mm-hmm. uh, and that's the industry they're in. But ultimately, you know, a lot of commentators will look at those and say, you know, the underlying platforms that they've built, they're flexible enough to be considered tech companies. Um, and tech companies, you know, as we've just said... Take a, have historically taken a long, long time to become profitable and taken a lot of money to go into them. So we were talking about the cost-income ratios. You know, Lloyd's with their incredible, you know, sort of by market standards, 48% cost-income ratio. The the other banks coming in the 65 yeah. to 70% region. Uh, Oak North talk about a 35%. You know, that's, that's wildly competitive by comparison. So do you think it's realistic, to your point, Adam, that the challenger banks would get there and then be able to build a balance sheet? Or is somebody just going to acquire these things before they get close? I think... Uh, 
I think we're still in the midst of before the seven-year cycle has even hit. So yeah. some of the most of the challenger banks that we're talking about started mid two thousand and fifty. Well, two thousand and ones, whatever that is. 15, 15, yeah. 14, 15. Um, So they're yet to hit the seven-year cycle. Um, still super early. I think the they're not really making a massive impact on big banks' balance sheets. I think if you look at starting, you've probably got the most on deposit. I think they're up to about six, seven hundred million. Might be misquoted on that, but it's around that number. Yeah. If you got RBS, it's like hundreds and hundreds of bit. You know, it's just absolutely like different mm. world. Um, and I think the difference, the differentiation isn't, necess- isn't necessarily going to become, um, I suppose, how, mu- how well these companies can do banking services. It's how, how well they can do tech services because that's where mm. di- their differentiation is. That's really, really interesting and compelling. And I guess the uh, the VC cycle, as you say, you, historically was seven years. Actually, most VCs talk about ten to twelve in terms of when when the exit looks like, and that's and even that can be conservative sometimes. So in twenty twenty five, we might see what these businesses are kind of supposed to be. Uh, it's going to be interesting to watch that. I mean, uh, Sharon, how do you think about that point that uh, Adam made about the the tech side? You know, people sort of um, there's two schools of thought, like tech for tech's sake, and look how fast it goes versus actually, you know, is the game still about balance sheet? JP Morgan are doing really well on a balance sheet game. That's true. Well, when I think about it, I think with these fintechs anyway, um, it'll be a big tech play Mm -hmm. because some of them are trying to come up with their own actual, like, you know, not just outsourcing it from, you know, your fusions, etc. They want to be able to build it themselves. So I guess the whole argument of build versus buy as well is is within that. But I think some of these tech firms, um, they're probably looking at how to make sure that their innovations keep getting more intuitive, mm-hmm. um, especially when it comes to customer experience and user experience. Just building that platform is probably better than their balance sheet play, um, especially when they're so like young. Um, some of these companies are quite young, so I, I guess they should play to their strengths, which is their tech. Interesting. Yeah. And the customer experience side, as you say. Mm. Uh, but I wonder, though, what's the business model at the end of the rainbow? Is the business model building a balance sheet, or is the business model going to be a mixture of stuff? But I mean, they're tra- the the challenger banks are trading on tech multiples at the mm. moment. So you're talking about um, you know multiple multiple times revenue, and I think the banks are still trading, I guess, on or market caps are based on bank multiples, which are a lot lower. It's a multiple of book. Yeah. So I think the um, and again, I think the, the the value in the in the challenges is around how quickly they can diversify, how quickly they can move geographies. Um, but the end game isn't necessary to get to the size of a JP Morgan or somebody else. It will be, you know, it doesn't. It, who could grow to that size? You know, JP Morgan has taken a hundred and something years to get to that point. Um, what does success look like for a challenger? I mean, that's a whole other topic, but I would imagine it's something a lot probably smaller from a balance book perspective, but from a valuation perspective, holds its own because of the tech they've so, got. So, Leona, how do they make money if it's not balance sheet? And should they be trying to make as much money because they've given their valuations? Well, I think what one thing that people do forget when we talk about all of this is really about like changing the hearts and minds of the consumer to get people to make these challenger banks their go-to, their number one, where they put their salaries into it, where they put their savings into it. At the moment, a lot with whether it's Demonze, Starling's N26, while like we're talking, Starling is a great example of how I think they're realizing that inertia and are putting marketing spend and all these things to try and get people to close their traditional bank and use them as their one place where all that money goes into it, their bills come out of it. They don't need anything else because in order to grow that deposit base, I think that that will show a great like stride in, you know, actually challenging the bank. Super interesting that you say that. There was, there's the old saying in banking being top of wallet. What card do you get out first? And actually, a lot of the challenges have become top of wallet, certainly for, for some generations. And then the other th- orthodoxy of banking is current accounts don't make you that much money, if any. Sometimes they even lose. It's If I can get a customer to take one more product, two more products, then actually they become wildly profitable. And who's in prime position to be the cross-selling um, kind of platform and have they got permission from you or do they have brand permission to cross sell you into their other products but also other people's products and, and are they taking referral fees there if, if if I become your shop window to financial services then then what does that mean I think it's an interesting question yeah and I definitely think that some places like Monzo are trying to do that and obviously Starling where they 
have enabled that you go on, people are using it more, top of wallet, people putting in maybe a bit more money and then make it very easy to go, oh, here's an overdraft. Oh, have you thought about this loan? Mm -hmm. Everything can be done in app and very quickly without having to log in and all this stuff and go all the traditional way, go into a bank branch and show your financials. Like they're, they're already on that path to do that. And if they can capture people on that, they get all the extra interest they hook people in into that ecosystem and keep you on platform and then it's hard for you to leave if you're like paying stuff back and going oh this has been okay i'll take something else yeah. that's the, an interesting the, innovation on the experience layer but also the the tech layer point that, that sharon made which is if the world becomes there will be more providers of financial services not less who owns the customer and then actually who has the tech that in, uh, allows that plays well in that world becomes a very different question but you have to be thinking on a different time horizon to next quarter I think to be really thinking about that sorry Adam no I was going to say I think the um, just to go back to that point I think the a lot of the value and the valuation is in the potential of a platform marketplace play mm -hmm. um, and I don't think yet if you look at you know all the challenges at the moment I don't think that's been particularly realized I don't think it's been uh, successful certainly from a from an income perspective um, but again we go back to how nascent some of these companies are versus it's time horizon isn't and it? it's and it's about time it's like when are you looking for that payback when is the VC looking for the payback and 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 what are the people who have shares in that company looking for and versus people who have shares in a big bank you know um, banks are considered yield stocks in other words their dividends you know their dividends Dividend stocks, you buy them because they pay dividends quarter on quarter and they're profitable. Yeah. And that's what their shareholders expect from them. The shareholders of the challenge banks are not expecting them to make a massive profit and to uh, kind of be paying back dividends at this point in their life cycle. They're expecting them to grow. Mm. They're expecting them to think five years ahead. And actually, and looking at are they profitable or not, people forget that lens. I think it's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things. What's also quite interesting, again, if you read the annual statements of the big banks, there's a focus on um, is going to be compressed, continue to be compressed probably into this year. So they're trying to offset that by reducing costs by X amount, 100 million in order to sort of, if you like, balance the books. Um, but that means like the focus isn't necessarily on uh, feature growth. Yeah. So I think, or experience. Like, or, yeah. or experience. So I think whilst the whilst the big banks probably will, will maintain that there's feature parity now between them and the challenges, which there certainly wasn't even three years ago. The concentration on growth, you know, product development, pro you know, mm. customer focus, as we've it's just been talking about, you're, you're, who's who's winning in that game? Because that's all what the challenges are about. But I also think about feature parity versus product parity. You know, some people say I, I can do multiple currencies and it's like, yeah, I can, but I've actually got 15 people behind the scenes sort of moving paper around. It's very different to it's all automated. Um, so feature parity isn't product parity also in terms of how it feels to you, the customer. Like I can do that thing, but I have to wait on the phone for three hours for like that experience point is, is really, really there. And actually, how much, given the banks have mostly um, been cutting for the past 12 years, how much left is there to cut if there are people sort of five years away from having completely different cost-income ratios? Is there, a, is there a cliff coming for them, do you think, Leona? Well, I think we've been seeing it with, let's say, with the bigger banks is that they've been there's been a lot of them that have been moving out of things like investment banking and actually really concentrating on whether it's wealth management yeah. um, or areas like that where you know that people with money are going to go to you mm -hmm. and you can provide them services and you can get a decent return. That's why uh, since the credit crisis, a lot of um, the big banks as well have been pairing back on the fixed income and currency and commodities desks and things like that. So um, I do think when it comes to the cuts, it's also at the same time looking at structure. I know we're talking about banks but like you can just see how um all these activist investors as well are starting to make um, financial services, um, whether it's insurance or whether it's banking, rethink their structures. Their structures from, for instance, uh, Prudential was in the news this week. Um, or was it today or yesterday? <laughs> it's all running into one. Um, but basically, um, Prudential, which has been in the UK for 137 years, they run their business out of London, but their biggest units are in the US and Asia. An activist investor, which um, is Third Point, which is a hedge fund run by Dan Loeb, who um, which they have uh, the second largest shareholder in Prudential. They um, actually asked them that. They want to, you know, rethink the structure. Maybe worked 100 years ago, 50 years ago, even 20 years ago. But actually now it's not fit for, well, this is what they said, it's not me, um, that it's not fit for purpose in um, the current climate. If 
they got rid of this one thing and actually you focused on digital and you went to US and you split it and went to Asia, you'd save 200 million a year. Wow. So things like that are happening more and more where people are actually shaking up and going, um, it's not just about cutting for the sake of it. It's like, let's rethink where we are in our climate, how our consumers are using us, so and do we market. need to do X, Y, Z? Has the market happen? changed around them to force force a different thing? And and have you understood that? Is it's sort of um, strategy tends to be sort of what are we going to do? You know, what what's the what's the backlog of work we're going to do this year versus strategy with a capital S is who are we going to be in five years yeah. and what's the market going to look like and and can you even do five year strategy anymore or do you need sort of um, a, a different lens on it because that that sort of strategy is a level of certainty about what the market was going to be and actually we're in a, we're in a much more uncertain I never world. knew where five-year strategies came from. I yeah. always thought it was a, it was just sort of an arbitrary number just pulled out of nowhere just because it was... So I think there's something interesting about clouds and dirt um, which is like a worldview or a thesis of like where the market is going and, and I think you see this a lot in VC investment that uh, there's a view as to there will be marketplaces, there'll be technology platforms, there'll be bank as a service, there'll be all of these sort of things that start to emerge. Therefore, what sort of things do I want to be doing? Mm. And then the dirt is purely tactically, what am I going to do right now yes. that gets me closer to that worldview? Um, and that's a sort of a, a much shorter horizon than the three-year planning cycle. But big organizations sort of have to move in those three years. Like, there are practical reasons why they, why they end up in that space. So it, it sort of makes a lot of sense. Stepping back from all of this, though, uh, what about our good friends at the big techs, Sharon? Is that going to change the market? Is that priced in to the share prices of big banks? We saw City do a partnership with Google. Obviously, Goldman are partnering now with uh, with the likes of Apple. Is that priced in? Or have people of Wheeling just started to see the beginning? I think we're just starting to see the beginning because a lot of people are starting to think that perhaps Amazon, there are rumors out there in the market, will start doing a whole sort of play for mm-hmm. Like your consumer, you can go there for literally everything. Um, but that hasn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's loads of predictions that just haven't come to fruition yet. But with these partnerships, I think what we're starting to see is that um, A, it's got to be about the user experience. So mm-hmm. does the Apple card actually work? I mean, when it launched, quite a few people had trouble with it. Um, does um, your actual app work? I mean, lots of people had complaints, as I mentioned earlier, with um, your Marcus by Goldman's and what have you. And also, to be honest, with some of these challenger banks as well, we've seen quite a lot of those complaints. Yeah. And then it's also about trust. you got to be able to build that trust with people in order to make sure that you're actually going to stay in the game. We've seen that with Facebook, how that really turned around for them because people did not trust them as a big tech is one of the big ones out there with your gaffers, (laughs) if you will. Rep risk with Google, Amazon, Apple and Facebook. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that when it comes to the big tech, one of the biggest things that before it gets too big, I think that regulation is going to be consistently Mm. on its tail. And I think that's going to curb any kind of, to be honest, meaningful Um, impact on bank share prices because I think that it will be on a smaller scale. I don't think that it's going to over the next few years, especially when it comes to privacy, Mm -hmm. um, how they're regulating the big techs anyway. There could be something in the next couple of years where they go, right, you're not allowed to be part of financial services because you've got too much power. Mm. Like I still think it's in such an infancy stage that I don't think that it's going to make a tangible share price impact within the next couple of years, possibly in the future. But I just think in terms of the regulation side, that's stopping anything big or hugely radical from being launched. I think we've seen, I think the big techs to that point have taken a lot out of profitable profit pools. And I think that's that's the key differentiation. Um, mm. And if you look at someone like, uh, or something like Apple Pay, uh, based off of Apple Card, which they launched in the States earlier on last year. Credit cards um, are a nice place to be. Uh, they are, they're making 3 billion transactions a quarter. They're growing four times the size of PayPal. This is huge. But in reality, how much has that actually moved the Apple share price? Probably mm-hmm. in comparison with all the other factors, the headphones and whatever else, probably not that much. But from a banking perspective, if they had, if a bank had that capability, it would, you know, double the market cap of banks overnight. And and I think that's the difference in terms of scale between big tech and banks. You're talking a completely different game, mainly because big techs, as we've always said, are diversified. I do think, though, that the benefit from a big tech on having these kind of plays is the data that they'll bring in 
potentially curbed by regulation further down the line. But I think from you know banking data is so valuable. Yeah. Uh, what they do with that is so valuable, and that's where you could see a material uptick in in share price. Seeing the market structure evolve is going to be an interesting one to watch, and we could see that in share prices. Um, so finally, um, what could the rest of the year look like? Are we going to see some tailwinds prediction time, crystal ball time? Uh, what do you think, Leona? Do you think we're going to see Good something God. majorly different oh. from what we saw so far? <laughs> well, I think 2020, we've got a few things. Um, we've, well, we're going to, well, on the UK side, obviously, we're going to see what's been happening with Brexit. Mm-hmm. That will that will make a difference towards the end because that will be the end of the transition period um, once um, Q4 is done. Um, we've also, at the same time, um, don't underestimate what's happening with coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, it may seem um, it, there isn't exactly a definitive dotted line of how it f- affects financials, but um, numerous um, banks and analysts and economists have all said that it's going to be quote-unquote unavoidable the kind of huge economic impact that's going to have and that includes on like the US as well which will have that trickle-down effect on consumers and obviously spending which will hit um, the banks so um, there's a lot of uncertainty right now but I do think those are the two biggest things and especially when we see what's happening with trade deals and obviously new kind of regulations coming in place um, that's going to be how much the banks are going to eat into their um, buffer zones I think. I'd say, uh, I think NIM stabilisation. I don't know why that sounds fun. (laughs) I'm obsessed with NIM. I don't know. Who is NIM? (laughs) Who is this person? Uh, I've just had my mind in, or my head in too many uh, business cases. Um, NIM stabilisation, which I think is good. Uh, I think you'll see a lot of the banks just again take portions, hundreds of millions, which again sounds like a lot of money, but in context it probably isn't, off their operation costs. Um, they're tankers that move slowly and they will continue to move slowly. But coronavirus, I think, is, is, is it could, could be almost devastating. I think if you've looked at the uh, even like something like the airline industry, which has lost about 100 billion so far, and that's only within, what, two, three months, any banks that are significantly exposed to that or have lent to that are going to be in some serious trouble, hence the reason why impairments and bad debts could go up. Uh, all of that within the context of a potential recession. I know we've said that year on year. Um, it could be a bad year. At best, it will be stabilised and things will just continue as they probably did sort of circa 2019. Sharon? Um, I'd say restructuring. So you'll see more like job cuts. You'll see more banks trying to figure out where their niche is, um, whether it's, for example, Credit Suisse, where they were like, you know, we're just going to focus on rich people now Mm. (laughs) and everyone else can just go away Mm. Um, or you know when it comes to some of these like smaller institutions um, they're going to try and carve a niche for themselves like you know um, SEB trying to do more like sustainable stuff Mm. so you know there are quite a few of these like little niches that we'll we'll start seeing grow Um, also consolidation so quite a lot of these mergers and acquisitions have been taking place strategically Um, the likes of PayPal and Honey um, sort of trying to make sure that you've captured all if you will fintech like fintech m&a has been really yeah, big yeah we'll see more of that yeah yeah it's like pokemon got to catch them all it's got to be happening it's gonna be an interesting year for sure and we'll be uh, covering all of it on fintech insider news uh, but that wraps up today's discussion thank you all so much for joining me uh, where can people find out more about you and what you do liana you can find me on twitter or various other places at liana brinded thank you very much liana uh sharon uh, you can find me on fintechfutures.com and also Banking Technology Magazine. Beautiful. And Adam? Uh, Adam D8 on Twitter and 11fs.com. Uh, that was a weird jingle. It's a weird jingle. <laughs> I don't know why. You can find me at SYTaylor or email me directly, Simon at 11fs.com. Thank you for listening. If you've liked what you heard, please, please subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. We love reading out those reviews. Um, it helps us to make the show better and it helps others find the show as well. Uh, speaking of which, if you know somebody who loves fintech and who isn't listening to Fintech Insider, pass along the good word. <laughs> Like they, they it's need not possible. Sim- it Does Nim know? <laughs> do, do they know? Somebody tell Nim. <laughs> if you have any suggestions or feedback, uh, also find us on social media. Um, search for 11FS, Fintech Insider, or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much and goodbye for now. 